my body, my mind, my psyche was given this opportunity to feel terror and to feel aloneness and to feel like extremely scared about the, what the future held. And then that fate was abated. This episode is sponsored by Etched Communication, a full-service public relations and crisis management firm. Connect with Etched via their website at etchedcom.com. That's E-T-C-H-E-D-C-O-M-M.com. Welcome, and I'm so excited because we are going to have a wonderful conversation today about a really important subject and one that really isn't getting a whole lot of publicity like it used to. I'm talking about AIDS. We are joined today by Zachary Barnett, who is the founder of the Abzyme Research Foundation, correct? Thank you for pronouncing that correctly. Did I pronounce it correctly? <laughs> Not everyone gets it on the first go. Really? Well, okay, so Zachary, tell us what is the Abzyme Research Foundation and why did you start it? So I think first thing you got to know is uh, Abzyme isn't a word in kind of common vernacular. Okay. And uh, for most people who are curious what that is, a uh, combination of two words that are somewhat abbreviated. Antibody in uh, vernacular is usually abbreviated to AB, and zyme relates to enzyme. Enzyme, okay. So you're talking about a new kind of antibody that works like an enzyme. And, um, so we'll get into the science a little okay. bit more later. Yeah. But I had the great opportunity to start a charity uh, to help support really exciting work around HIV vaccine and therapeutic cure mm-hmm. um, in 2011. And I've been working on supporting this approach that actually came out of University of Texas, Houston, um, over about 25, 30 years of work. And I've been working on this project now for about 10 years and helping bring it to clinical trials and hopefully to the world. So what is it about this project that's unique? What, what is it about Abzyme? Tell us. What makes it different? So I, th- I like to think about it in uh, the scope of uh, immunology as a whole and especially vaccines. So when you think about all the big breakthroughs around vaccines, they've always been met with incredible controversy. So uh, when you think about the first vaccine really ever created, uh, smallpox, um, it was met with huge skepticism that you would actually be exposing people in some form to the virus in order to protect them. When you think about uh, Jonas Salk and the polio vaccine, when he first put forth the largest a field trial ever executed by the American public. When they tested his polio vaccine, it was the largest public health effort ever. And he was met with huge skepticism. And uh, almost the entire established medical community told him he was going to fail in a written letter two weeks before the trial. And he succeeded, but in the long run, both him and his critics were right. So as we move further along into figuring out how diseases work and how can our immune system fight them, every time we have a big breakthrough forward, there's a huge wave of pushback that happens before that. Mm. And this team uh, is really coming up uh, with the understanding and the mechanism for a whole new category of um, abilities that our immune systems have and just need to be unlocked. So... Are you a scientist yourself? Uh, I am now. You are now, but you're not by training. <laughs> no, right? not so, by training. So, so how did you get here? Right. So um, I got here through what something would, some people would describe as a tragic event that turned into an incredible opportunity. Um, so I was infected by a partner with HIV in 2008, and um, easily the most uh, con- 
traumatic event in my life. Um, I remember, you know, thinking all the terrible thoughts you would think. Um, like, I was going to die, I was going to wither, my, my youth would fade, my family would be disappointed, everything kind of cascaded in. And then I got um, some pretty incredible news shortly thereafter. Uh, when I went in for uh, medical diagnosis, my, uh, my numbers, my lab results didn't correlate with what doctors were expecting to see. So most people, when uh, infection is established, the HIV really tears through their system. They get sick initially, there's a lot of virus in the system, and over time, left untreated, that virus etches away at your immune system and you get a cold and you die. That's AIDS. Um, in my system, the situation was reversed. I had a very small level of detectable virus to begin with, and within six months, my body naturally fully suppressed it. So um, wow. the condition is called elite controller. Very few people have it, but my body is able to actually fully suppress HIV without any medication. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So I started um, volunteering my body as a kind of guinea pig for all of these trials and scientists who are working nationwide to try and figure out, you know, what's the breakthrough, what's the next step. So let me, let me back up for just a second. So you get the diagnosis, mm -hmm. you go to get medical treatment, mm -hmm. and you find out that you're an elite controller. Did yeah. you ever feel sick? No. You never felt sick. So the only reason you even knew that you had the virus is because you were getting tested regularly, I would, I would imagine. Yeah, I was, a, you know, I was a young gay man, high-risk group. And, um, you know, I think everyone in their 20s feels like they're somewhat invincible. And, I, you know, long story short, I put too much trust in a person who was not trustworthy and, um, you know, had this result. And so... I got this, you know, elite controller status, and it gave me an incredible um, look. And when we talked earlier about preparing for this interview, look mm -hmm. into the other, right? So right. I was, um, my body, my mind, my psyche was given this opportunity to feel terror and to feel aloneness and to feel like extremely scared about the, what the future held. And then that fate was abated. It was pushed aside. So how long between the time that you were diagnosed until you found out that you are an elite controller? About six months. And during that period of time, you walked around feeling like... It was over. I didn't, you know, I'm incredibly close with my family. I didn't tell anyone. Uh, I only told two friends. Um, I retreated uh, from my social scene and really had a hard time connecting with anything. What were you afraid of, other than the obvious medical? Yeah, itself? I think uh, as a as a gay man, um, when you come out, you overcome this huge fear around what's going to happen when you come out. Um, you have a fear about what happens once you become yourself, and the only like thing that's more terrifying than that is, you know, growing up, knowing about HIV, knowing about AIDS and the huge impact it had on the LGBT community and then falling into the same trap. Um, so it's, it's a second more painful coming out. Um, How old were you when you came out? Uh, I came out as gay when I was 18 and then, uh, 18, 19, and then this happened when I was about 26. Um, and then I was afraid, you know, A, of the health benefits, but then you know, all the potential rejection and judgment that would come with it, right? Yeah. 
would I ever find someone to love me? What, you know, the, all these fears that you have naturally. And then you take something that has a huge label and stigma and fear around it. And you then have to identify with that. So the, initially, the, all those barriers were so huge and they felt insurmountable. And then I was able to get this incredible uh, kind of silver lining. And it showed me that I was supposed to do something with that. I had a very clear... Uh, very clear internal sense that I was meant to help, you know, other people feeling that fear and that terror, help them somehow, uh, provide them some kind of relief. Right. And so that's when I started searching. And I started searching through the researchers I was participating with in these labs and these cure studies and online and looking at work and Mm -hmm. trying to understand what was happening. And I found this researcher based in Houston through a CBS news article called Possible HIV Cure. And I wrote to, wrote to him what was happening with me, and I sent him some money, and I said, hey, like this is my skill set. I had done huge uh, events. and Yeah, I was going to ask you, what, what were you doing um, you know, career-wise at the moment that this diagnosis happened? Yeah, so I was doing a couple of pretty strange things. Um, <laughs> okay. In New York, I had a, an art gallery, but I also did large events for spirits companies. So I helped activate... Spirits companies? Vodka. Like vodka, okay. Yeah, so, As in alcohol. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so I was throwing spirits. I was throwing huge events in New York. Okay. Um, I helped launch the Sex in the City party at the MoMA. Uh, you know, things of this scale. So I had a certain skill set for putting things together and putting events together and experiences together. Mm-hmm. And I offered to volunteer that uh, for this team in Houston to try and start throwing events and raising money for them. Um, so that, that kind of took off and... 2000 and, uh, 2009, 10, we did some volunteer work. 2011, a philanthropist gave me seed money to start a nonprofit, a charity. And from there, I was able to raise you know, over a million dollars to help bring this to initial conversations with the FDA, uh, start preclinical work, start manufacturing the vaccine to get ready for human trials. We've had some incredible milestones, and we've been able to push the work forward a certain amount. And now it seems like it's ready to kind of start having a conversation to move towards clinical trials. Great. I was just going to say, so where are you now in this process? Yeah. What is your ultimate goal? What's your, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening? Yeah. So, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening is, um, you know, with any research, uh, you, you can't be sure of the outcome, right? The research is meant to validate the outcome. My, oh my gosh, this is happening is to get this thing forward into human trials and see I can't say that the thing I'm really craving most is for it to succeed. It definitely is. But the oh my gosh would be we found the right people who care about this, who want to test an idea that's really different and unique and exciting and move it into trials and then, you know, let let the forces take over, right? You know, everyone's done their work, push it into trials, see what happens. So the FDA has basically done its due diligence in order for it to move toward human trials. Right. When do you expect this to happen? How quickly? Um, so we've got to do some fundraising still. Okay. Uh, up until this point, I've been raising funds through a nonprofit. Uh, the nonprofit's taking charitable donations. We've been uh, making grants to make this happen. We're at the stage of the game where some of my larger supporters are starting to get interested in looking at this from a different angle. You know, could we invest? Uh, Is there a way to actually partner on this? And so at this stage in the game, uh, myself, the scientists, some other professionals are trying to figure out a way to build a vehicle, build a company that is investable. And so at this stage in the game, uh, I'm kind of changing hats. 
I'm starting to move into a place where I can coordinate with people to really bring capital in in a more powerful way. So for people who are, are watching or, or listening to this um, conversation today, uh, uh, particularly for those who are HIV positive, mm-hmm. what's your message to them? Um, that's interesting. So I think two messages. Um, one, just about the experience. Um, once I came to terms with uh, what was happening with me um, in terms of being positive and wanting to make a difference and wanting to be right with myself, talking to my family, finding people I could trust about it, opening up, ultimately becoming a public advocate, all helped kind of heal the pain. Uh, the reality of people living with HIV now is most people taking consistent treatment are not infectious, right? So if you're taking drugs and you're suppressed or you're naturally suppressed, you can't infect your partner. The idea of HIV as this huge insurmountable thing has largely gone away for people with means and access. However, for it, those without the means and the access, it remains the number one killer of women of reproductive age worldwide. That's an amazing statistic, yeah. and it's not one that we hear a lot about no. these days. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, you know, when the virus first came on the scene back in the 80s. Yeah. I remember that because yeah. I had some friends who were infected, and I, one who, who died. Yeah. Um, I was actually a waitress in New York City. Yeah. And a beautiful young gay man who was just, you know, just the light of, of our lives. I mean, we all loved him. And he was one of the first casualties of the virus. Yeah. And the, um, you know, when I think about the stigma um, that went along with it and still does today, but it's not, obvi- obviously, so much time has passed. Treatment, you know, back then there was no treatment. Yeah. And now, as you just said... Um, there are treatments, and for those who have the access and the resources to get the treatment, they're able to live pretty normal lives. Completely normal. But say that statistic again for those who didn't hear it the first time. Yeah, so um, HIV-AIDS still uh, takes about over a million lives a year, somewhere between a million and 1.5 million. Um, The majority, or over 50% of those, are women. Women. And, you know, it is concentrated in some real problem areas, right? Mm -hmm. Sub-Saharan Africa, but Mm -hmm. in... In the United States, there are areas, and especially certain pockets, where uh, suppression rates, and this is very true for a lot of the black community in the South, where suppression rates and viral load rates are worse here than in parts of Africa, right? So the, wow, what's, what's happening here and how the system engages and empowers and treats people, it's, it's very different depending on who you are, where you live, you know, how you identify. Yeah. And you know, that's a, it's a major problem. Um, and I've, I've said and I continue to believe that, you know, if we're going to get to eradication, if we're going to live in a world without AIDS, you know, not necessarily without HIV, but without AIDS, um, you need a vaccine. And the distinction being you can have the virus, HIV, and right. not have full-blown AIDS. 100%. So I always talk to people about um, chickenpox, right? Chickenpox is a retrovirus. Mm-hmm. It writes itself into your cells. You get chickenpox. You have the disease symptom flare up, and then it goes into dormancy for most people. Later in life, you can develop shingles. That's an expression of the virus, right? You haven't been cured of chickenpox, but you're having you know, a later incident of it. 
The vaccine for shingles is a therapeutic vaccine. It prevents expression. And what we're doing with this uh, candidate we're working on has an indication for a therapeutic vaccine. So not necessarily taking HIV out of every cell, but preventing the expression of HIV. Right. So doing a similar job as you would like to see with effective uh, everyday medication through a vaccination. When we started talking about um, you doing this interview, and I was explaining to you, you know, what this podcast is about in terms of why I decided to start it, mm-hmm. and um, and it, it's just wanting to give voice to stories like yours and all the millions of stories that are out there, um, in hopes that that you know, there, there's probably somebody watching right now or listening right now who has an idea of what it means to be HIV positive or, or for someone to have AIDS. And they probably um, uh, have a stigma mm-hmm. against it. Okay, sure. My hope with this interview mm-hmm. is that whoever that person is out there who might have thought that when they first started watching or listening, sure. that they're thinking about it in a different way now. Yeah. Um, and that's, it, I mean... Is that why you decided to to do this interview and why you're so vocal about your experience? Because I know it wasn't easy to get to the point where you could just be who you are and speak your truth and stand in it, not knowing how people are going to react to you. Yeah, so I kind of see it as, um, you know, struggles often provide gifts, right? And I think... um, in, in my case, you know, struggling with HIV, the the gift is really that, like, with any health condition, um, you shouldn't feel shame about seeking help and being who you are and being accepted for who you are. And what's happened with HIV is so great because with treatment, you know, you're not a danger to anyone, intimate or otherwise. And um, the stigma that was once there that people, you know, had genuine fear over can be dispelled, but if people are willing to show themselves, right? So I think um, a little anecdote, a board member of mine at Abzheim Research Foundation and I met with a donor in Chicago, very successful 40-year-old man. And um, my fellow board member, you know, is approaching his 60s, and they were talking about their shared experience of who'd been infected and had they known anyone who died and the 40-year-old had said, well, I don't know anyone who's died of HIV. I know people who were positive, but I don't know anyone who's died of AIDS. And my board member, 20 years you know, older, is like, I couldn't count all the people I lost. Right? I have my journals from the 90s about addresses and you know, names. And everything's just crossed out. Right? So we've, we've done it one huge leap. And I think to get to the next leap, those who are you know, impacted by the virus... Um, should consider and should really embrace the idea of talking about it, bringing it forward into the light, engaging people, you know, inviting them in to lose that shame and that discomfort, and bringing them in as allies. Part of the, you know, the reason that maybe progress seems to have slowed down or we're not talking about it as much is people who are impacted, it's easier to stay silent. They don't want to invite the criticism and the stigma. But by doing that, you, you know, erase the presence of yourself uh, affiliated with the virus, but also probably of others. So it's been important to bring it forward in order to try and confront that. You know, people can be healthy. They're not a danger to you. This is a medical thing. And HIV, over the course of its research life, has helped so many other disease states, right? When we started looking at HIV in the 80s, uh, the understanding of the immune system was 
really patchy, right? We didn't know what different cells did, how they operated. Because this virus lives and breeds and destroys the immune system, the gates open in terms of scientists really understanding how those mechanisms work. Those gifts have been passed on to cancer treatment, you know, all various kinds of disease states treatment. So everyone's in this together. I think you're a believer of that. People are people and uh, health is something that we should be able to talk about, share, embrace without shame or stigma. What would be your advice to someone who is HIV positive, um, who is being, um, I guess, shunned in, in some way or is being made to feel like the other? How would you suggest that they deal with and respond to situations as they present themselves? So I would say two things. One is the first piece of advice my doctor gave me. Never disclose for anyone else. Don't disclose anticipating a reaction from someone. Right? Disclose because you want to disclose because it's important to you because it's, you're doing it as something for yourself. If you disclose and you're doing it to anticipate a reaction or you think something's going to go a certain way, you better buckle up because people's you know, understanding and perception can be so different. So you really have to center those decisions in yourself. And then you know, I think secondly, it's probably really important to rehearse you know, I, I always tell people, and people are most afraid of, you know, talking to their parents and then talking to potential, you know, intimate partners. Especially with inter- intimate partners, tell them up front, you got to be real, you know, honest early, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But rehearse, right? Like, this is something where it's going to make you really nervous and it's going to be hard to broach the subject. So I always advise people to plan ahead, think out a scenario in your mind, hide, like, you know, I'd love to talk to you about something and... If you share from a position of uh, concern and respect and uh, leadership, people take it a lot differently than, you know, oh, I'm trying to backtrack and figure it out. Right. Come prepared and present and then don't have a big expectation about what's going to happen. Some people may freak out, right? you got to just let them freak out. Try and not make it about anticipation. Try and make it about respect and sharing. It's hard, though. I, I get it. I get it. But I, I love that, you know, the respect word because that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about in terms of human relationships. Right. Regardless of whether HIV is a part of it or not. Right. Um, it's about respecting each other as human beings. Mm-hmm. And if you come from that place, then you have a much better chance of getting where you really want to be. 100%. Yeah. 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 So, um I, this is such exciting news. I never knew that there was anything called an elite, what is it, control? Elite controller. Elite controller. So how, many you, of, how many elite controllers are out there? It's about uh, 2% of uh, northern European population naturally has this. And there's a theory that isn't proved that maybe somehow it's tied to bubonic plague survivors. Um, you know, the, the immune system wow. evolves in a very curious way. I'll tell you a funny story, though. When I finally did disclose to my mom and sit her down, I was able to, at that point, give her the bad news, give her the good news afterwards. She's Irish, and she has kind of a wicked sense of humor. And uh, she sits, and she thinks about it for a second. She was like, oh, you would be an elite. <laughs> she was trying to like, turn it back on me, and I was like, oh, are you upset, or are we cool now? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I love so, it. <laughs> yeah, and then when I, you know, my, out of my family, my dad, I told last, then I told him, and he was like, mm-hmm. He's like, when did your mom find out? And I was like, <laughs> y'all are both, like, really, like, not approaching this how I expected, right? Right, right. So it was, yeah, out of everyone, you know, my sister was the most upset. My brother was like, how are you? My mom was like, of course you have this handled. My dad was like, when did you tell me your mom? And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> thanks, everyone, for being, like, so off script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was. It was actually that's a, you know a little bright laughing oh, spot. Your family sounds wonderful. They're they, great. They sound they sound really great. Yeah, they're yeah. great. So well, first of all, I'm I'm so glad that you're healthy no, and thanks. that that you know things are are moving in a positive direction with mm-hmm. with the Abzyme Research Foundation. Mm-hmm. And for people out there who want to get more information, sure. um, either just to learn more and keep track of what you're doing, or want potentially want to invest or whatever, what should they do? Um, so you can find out about the Abzyme Research Foundation uh, very easily endhiv.com. Uh, we got all of the social uh, addresses for NHIV, so it's the same on Facebook, YouTube, etc. Okay. Um, we're in the process of figuring out how to establish a, a partner organization that's going to be for profit. So investment won't come through uh, the foundation, but the foundation will continue to be a center of thought and leadership. Right. Uh, we're supporting a study right now. Um, with University of Houston and University of Nebraska to prove that the antibodies from this vaccine are able to prevent HIV from mutating around it, that we're able to get such an essential part of the virus that it can't mutate or can't reproduce. Mm -hmm. So we'll be continuing to put out work uh, throughout this year and present in various forums, and hopefully in the coming months you'll see announcements about a, a new you know, socially minded for-profit that's going to pop up and move this thing to the next stage. Excellent. And we'll also link to um, your website through oh, our website on ourvoicesmatterpodcast.com. So, and then in a couple of years, we can do this over and Yeah, I was just going to say, you, you know, you're going to, I'm going to, well, you're, you're in my life now, so you're not getting rid of me. That's oh, perfect. Thing, okay? That's fantastic. Yeah. So I definitely want to keep up with what's going on. And, and as the progress is made, we definitely want you to come back and share with our audience. So great. Thanks for having me. It's Thank been really so fun. Much. Zach, and thank you for taking the time to listen and um, for taking the time to watch and be a part of our audience. So we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks so much for giving our guest permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. If the mission of Our Voices Matter resonates with you, please like, subscribe, download, and share, and then join the conversation because it really is going to take all of us to make a difference.